tighty. We'll start in a few minutes. Hey Gwen, uh, we'll start in a few minutes. This room is about um, using AI machine learning um, to design um, synthetic human gut microbiome. Uh, our guest speaker, just I just had the introduction room with him and he'll be here in a, in a minute. Hi Gilbert. Oh, hi Richard, how are you? Thanks for coming. Hi, Ethan. Hi, Burgle. Um, Al, um, Albert Hero, he will come in a few minutes. We just had the introduction meeting and he will talk about his part of this study uh, using machine learning uh, to design synthetic human gut microbiome. And uh, yeah. On the top, you see the link to the presentation. If you want to click on it and start checking it out. And in the chat, I added the, um, the paper link. Uh, it should be open source, so you should be able to access it. So yeah, we'll start in a few minutes.
Hi, Denise. Hi, Mayor. How are you today? Hi, Katarina. Hi, Gilbert. Hi, everyone. There should be an interesting talk. I definitely want to hear about what's going on in the synthetic gut microbiome AI realm. Yeah, so our guest speaker today is the expert of the machine learning designing. Hi, Alfred is here. Hi, Al, how are you? We just had the meeting, so we were just talking two minutes ago. Um, welcome, Al. Uh, meet uh, Gilbert, Dennis, and Mayer. Um, and yeah, thanks for coming. Can you hear me? Yes. We sure can. Great. Pleasure Great. to meet you. Yeah, that, thanks, thanks for coming here. I think, I think this room is probably going to grow. I mean, uh, this is an awesome title, Synthetic Human Gut Microbiome with AI. I am very excited to hear uh, um, this, uh, this topic for sure. Great. Yeah. Well, there's lots of, lots of interesting things uh, that uh, revolve around the gut microbiome and around AI too. And this is a meeting of the minds. Um, so you'll hear more about um, how we are making progress in understanding how the uh, gut microbiome is effectively um, designable and uh, uh, using AI uh, can be um, uh, used to identify uh, different types of, uh, of, of species, bacteria in the microbiome that can um, accomplish the function uh, that's desired. Yeah, and are they like, I remember watching shows about this a while back and it was fascinating how the, you can take um, some of the material from one, uh, you know, microbiome in the gut and then put it into another individual, which provides them, it's, uh, it's almost like a medicine, right? Where you're transferring yeah. from one person to another to heal, to heal issues. So that's, that's, that's fascinating. And then the whole, um, I guess it's a big problem with the, uh, antibiotics where the antibiotics can go in there and kind of mess up the gut biome. Right. And, exactly. And, yeah. Yeah, so it'd be nice to hear about that, especially like which what things to avoid, you know, so we can keep our microbiome healthy, you know, yeah. which, which antibiotics are destroying the microbiome, you know? Yeah, and it's not just keeping it healthy, but uh, also for enhancing performance. Um, uh, it, you can add um, uh, certain uh, uh, nutrients, certainly, to, to your... Um, your body to give you enhanced strength or stamina or what have you, but the microbiome plays a, an equally important role. Um, uh, and so, yeah, it's a very important component, one of the least understood um, of the uh, uh, sort of human host um, that uh, maintains health and fights off uh, disease and uh, enhances our uh, livelihood. Awesome, awesome. Well, what is, is it, so is this your first uh, day on Clubhouse? It is. Yeah, yeah. I'm not familiar with this uh, venue. It's kind of, kind of nice, um, being um, uh, not having to share screen. As always, you worry that you know something's going to go wrong, technical difficulties, and so forth. The phone is just so much more reliable, um, and uh, you know I think it's uh, it it leads to a somewhat less stressful experience um we'll see of course well this is a great club like coming in through, i mean katarina's awesome i mean she brings yeah. on awesome people to host great rooms and so like you know all the brains and 
geeks and nerdy folks will show up here and uh it it, it does create a it, it's a nice environment uh where uh all you know like minds kind of like come together you know so yeah. it's not it might not be like thousands of people but it is you know definitely the you know the, the right set of people that kind of show up you know cool yeah, thank you for that great introduction, actually. <laughs> and um, yeah, I think we can start. So uh, welcome everyone to Science Society and a special welcome uh, to Dr. Alfred Hero. And uh, before we start, let me give you a little bit of uh, introduction so you get to know him a little bit. Um, Dr. Alfred Hero, he's the John H. Holland Distinguished University Professor of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science, and R. Jameson and Betty Williams Professor of Engineering at the University of Michigan and Harbor. And he is a fellow of the Institute of Electrical and Electronical Engineers and the Society for Industrial and Applied Mathematics. And he's a recipient of the Fourier Award in Signal Processing from the IEEE. And he's a section editor of the CM Journal of Mathematics of Data Science and senior editor of the IEEE Journal and selected topics on uh, in signal processing. And um, yeah, so we are very honored to have you here today. And before we start, we like to usually ask like a couple of interview questions uh, before we dive into um, yeah your project and your research. Cool. Uh, yeah. So, how um, did you come about to choose science as your life or career? Was it something you always wanted to do? Was there a teacher? Maybe a class? You took a book you read? Um, what what brought you to this um, life? <laughs> yeah, it's a very good question. I, yeah, so I, um, you know, I was born on um, one of the baby boomer generation, uh, sort of on the, the later end of it. Um, born in the 50s, uh, grew up with um, science fiction, which certainly was a, a, a titillating uh, introduction to science as it affects society and affects the humankind, you know, Jules Verne and H.D. Wells and Stanley Kubrick, of course, uh, later on um, in, uh, in, in 2001. Of course, it was also a very turbulent time uh, with the Bay of Pigs, uh, uh, the Cuban um, Missile Crisis, uh, JFK, MLK, RFK, all those assassinations, and then Apollo 11. So it was, you know, a, a period of lots of uh, turbulence um, but, you know, with with my um, uh, interests that were effectively from coming from a combination of the books that I read, the science fiction primarily, and uh, the realization that, you know, society was in, in turbulence, um, it was a desire to do something in terms of a career that would both um, uh, create new scientific solutions to uh, problems that uh, uh, would affect society. And so, um, you know, I, I went to high school and uh, uh, was really taken with physics. If there was one teacher 
uh, it would have been my high school physics teacher in my uh, um, in in ninth grade uh, who uh, really uh, uh, got me hooked on on experimental science. And then, of course, I got more interested in math, um, mathematical and computational uh, uh, aspects of science as I sort of moved into college, um, and uh, and then came into contact with scientists from all stripes, uh, not just computational scientists, but uh, bench scientists, experimental scientists. Um, and uh, that really motivated me to, uh, uh, to, to do a doctorate in this, uh, in the area that I perceived as being the most central to science in general. And that is the computational aspects, the computational underpinnings, uh, which affect everything from um, you know, astro uh, sciences, astrophysics, uh, uh, solar physics, to uh, health, uh, to biology, um, material science, and beyond. All areas that I've been very active in uh, during my career in trying to contribute computational method methods to um, enhance and accelerate scientific discovery. So that that's sort of a a, a description. Yeah. That's fascinating. It's always so interesting to hear how the path led to, um, yeah, to science. Um, mm. I think it's, um, it's, uh, and, and how did you then from discovering that this was kind of something you would, you know, you find this really interesting. How did you come to, um, doing research in this specific um area and um mm -hmm. yeah and is there like is there a specific story to doing research in this uh, microbiome because you know you're an engineer so it's it's really yeah. interesting how this came about it's funny yeah because you know in the beginning my first my first real um encounter with the uh, microbiome research was about seven years seven or eight years ago um when there was a initiative here at the University of Michigan called the Blue Sky Initiative, where people were encouraged to think out of the box about things that would be especially uh, propitious to uh, study in consort with you know multiple multidisciplinary teams, and that could have you know really transformative uh, transformative impact. And so, a colleague of mine in engineering, uh, in chemical engineering and, and mechanical engineering. At that at that time was was thinking about how to make antibiotics without the biotic part. So using nanoparticles instead of antibiotics to form uh, microfilms um, uh, that are uh, biofilms, I should say, of of, of microorganisms that uh, could replace uh, antibiotics. So in a sense. My entry to, to microbiomes was through synthetic biology as opposed to um, uh, at true microbiomes that exist in nature. Um, and then that led to, uh, of course, you know, you get one thread and that leads to another uh, and uh, uh, led to collaborations with, um, uh, with the University of Wisconsin uh, that uh, 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 on the the actual in this case uh, gut microbiome, I also have another collaboration there with another scientist, uh, Joe Handelsman, on the uh, plant microbiome, the rhizosphere. Um, so uh, it's become a, a major component of my activities, 
because it combines uh, sort of all those aspects that a scientist loves. And that is um, uh, an enormous impact if you can make a difference in, in, and discover the inner workings and mechanisms of microbiome um, interactions with the human host or with any other uh, host. Uh, and the uh, computational challenges that uh, that lie underneath, which I'll talk about in more detail as I get into my talk. Well, that is uh, really interesting, and I'm so glad you were open to kind of uh, venture out of your, um, I don't know if it's really out of your field, but um, yeah, to, to venture into these topics that uh, maybe in the beginning when you started your career, you didn't think into going into a more biological um, complex it's, system. You're true. It's absolutely true. I did not, I did not have more than maybe one class in biology my entire um, university uh, career. I think I had one class in biology. That's right. And, but coming from the computational side, um, you know, I, I could not do a wet lab experiment. Um, I'll, I'll admit that right out. Um, uh, Ophelia Venturelli, my co-author um, on this paper, uh, does all of the experimental model work. But uh, the computational aspects have become more and more important to scientific discovery, in particular in very highly complex systems like, you know, these uh, hundreds or thousands of interacting, interacting microbes in a, a gut microbiome that, uh, you know, produce different types of functions, uh, metabolites, um, volume functions, transformative functions that uh, are extremely complex in terms of the, uh, the, the composition, the types of bacteria that are present uh, in the microbiome. And that's what we set out to find um, in this project. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, I still think it's, it's really wonderful that you ventured out there and based on research we have so far, which is not perfect, it's also, also the perfect way of staying healthy and young. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because being a rookie at something and keep learning, I think it's kind of one of the key uh, components yeah. of staying and so. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that story. And uh, yeah, you're welcome to um, give your presentation. We'll ask questions in the end, unless you would need really clarification. We invite you to use the chat so we can address those so we get the whole presentation covered in the time we have. And um, yeah, the stage is yours. Thank you. Great. Okay. Well, I, I, I think everyone probably has been able to open the uh, PDF file um, that has the talk on it. I have a number of slides. Uh, I'm going to go fairly quickly through some of them. There's sort of something here for for everybody. Um, uh, there's uh, you know some some high level motivation uh, for both the the AI part and the microbiome um, uh, scientific uh, endeavor that uh, uh, that that AI has has come in to help uh, uh, to help clarify. Um, and uh, there's also some some more deep dive types of things. Uh, very little mathematics here. I may, there might be one or two mathematical equations max, um, uh, but uh, we'll see how it we'll see how it goes. So um, uh, so if you go to the the first title slide is uh, basically just a uh, copy and paste from the paper that just appeared uh, last uh, June. Um, 
on recurrent neural networks for microbiome dynamics discovery. And uh, I'm one of many authors, uh, we're six authors. Um, three of them are computational scientists. Three of them are experimental scientists. So this is one of these examples of how putting computation in tandem, in concert with uh, experimentalists can really accelerate uh, the process of, of discovery and design, um, uh, what uh, in particular uh, microbiome design, which uh, this is um, uh, targeting. Um, so um, the second slide, I'm gonna just give you some takeaways. Now you may not understand all these takeaways right now. Um, if you uh, don't know anything about the microbiome but, uh, uh, or machine learning, but I just give these takeaways at the beginning to sort of provide some, some high level context. And then we'll slide down into uh, the, um, some of the more specifics uh, uh, after I finish uh, talking about the main points here that come out of this paper. So number one is that this computational model, which we call you know, machine learning, uh, which is a, of course an umbrella term for lots and lots of things, probably one of the least well-defined terms in computational science, because it covers almost any kind of mathematical model that you might apply to data in order to uh, uh, predict um, uh, responses that, that, that occur under uh, conditions under which uh, the data has been collected. So um, computational modeling, machine learning, accelerating discovery is really the whole um, uh, bailiwick of, of our activity. Um, and in this case, we use this um, in, in microbial communities with experimental data that's been collected by our Wisconsin colleagues um, to learn relations between the species that are in these microbial communities, in particular, this is a synthetic gut microbial community. Uh, synthetic, I don't mean synthetic in terms of not biological. These are actually biological communities, but uh, 25 uh, different species out of the over 1,000 species that we know naturally um, inhabit uh, the gut microbiome. Um, uh, so we look for composition, species, the species that are in each one of these communities, if you like, uh, growth over time, um, uh, where do they end up in terms of stable um, uh, relative uh, abundance, as it's called, abundance meaning how many microbes um, of one particular species are, in the, are there in the community, and how does that fluctuate over time, um, and then metabolic function which I'll talk about several of the types of functions that these microbiomes uh, 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 will cause uh, in a minute. So uh, to give you an idea of the complexity of this problem of trying to learn these relations, um, there are, with 25 species, there are 33 million communities, 33 million possible combinations of 25 species from you know communities of one all the way to communities of all 25, well, one community of all 25, right? Um, and so we can't, we can't perform that many experiments to discover how these communities affect uh, the growth of the uh, different species in the communities or the metabolic function that they, uh, uh, that they induce. Um, uh, so we're, we're reduced to only looking at a handful of experiments, 413 to be precise. precise. Um, uh, and 
uh, we're able to basically extract from a single time point of what we call a full metabolic yield dynamical profile um, that um, is, enables us to um, uh, identify particular bacteria in a microbiome that specialize in uh, growing the microbiome, that is uh, growing the volume of, of, of cells, um, bacterial cells, uh, or function, growing the function, the metabolic uh, expression, if you like, that uh, leads to uh, being able to digest foods or um, maintain uh, gut health uh, or beyond. And so we accomplished this in point three by really embedding machine learning into the scientific discovery process. So this is not a case where the computational scientists worked on a model uh, or pulled a model out of uh, uh, you know, a, a tensor flow um, uh, uh, that uh, then was th thrown to the data and then uh, we communicated by, by throwing the results back to the scientists. We worked in tandem meeting virtually every week uh, to uh, really embed machine learning into the process, and I'll discuss how that how that works. It's a two-stage process that we implement in the paper. You perform a handful of experiments. You seed the predictor with four hundred, with really three hundred and, and and some odd experiments, um, and then you use the outcomes of that uh, predictor for that very few experiments to try to uh, predict the thirty-three million community uh, behaviors. Um, and that's where machine machine learning is so uh, so useful because it can uh, uh, generalize uh, quite uh, quite effectively from small amounts of data to the larger um, uh, scope, if you like, of possible uh, complexities that might exist in in this case the uh, communities. Okay, so that's uh, I'm going to go to the next slide here, which is just uh, showing this. Uh, the scientific discovery cycle, uh, the sometimes called the Kuhn cycle, uh, that um, uh, was uh, that, that characterizes how uh, how scientists do scientific research. You do uh, experiments. Uh, you then perhaps infer from the experiments a potential model uh, for why the response happens uh, when you have particular conditions in your experimental. Uh, apparatus. You then um, uh, go back and generate more data, learning from that model how to predict what the best next experiment would be to explore the landscape of possible experimental conditions to produce responses of interest. Um, and so putting machine learning into this loop is what uh, our research is all about. Um, and so automating parts of this, either the learning part and form that is model building, or the experimental part, using the model to most successfully uh, designate uh, potential experiments that will allow you the model to actually improve uh, itself uh, over time. Um, uh, and so you have this, this cycle where uh, uh, we can incorporate machine learning at various points. And so I'm gonna go now to the uh, uh, microbiome on slide four uh, for the gut uh, microbiome uh, shown um, uh, with the human, the digestive system in the middle of the slide. Um, so a microbiome is really just a, uh, a, a microbial community, right? It's uh, several types of microbes that are denoted at, at left of the this gray box 
that all interact together. Some of them interact um, in a um, inhibitory fashion um, uh, to inhibit other uh, uh, species of uh, microbes uh, from expressing uh, a per particular type of compound, uh, metabolite, uh, or it may enhance, um, uh, which is that arrow, green arrow is, is denoting. Um, and so they, these metabolites are chemicals denoted uh, on, the, on the right of that uh, gray blocks, uh, box that then can uh, enhance the ability of the host where the microbiome is located uh, to, uh, to function, or um, it can um, uh, prevent disease, uh, en enhance human performance, um, uh, and uh, uh, also produce valuable compounds. So for, for example, uh, you've probably all heard of uh, with the um, uh, different oil slicks that have been uh, uh, mitigated by applying bacterial films, bacterial treatments uh, uh, to mitigate negative environmental impacts. And actually these bacteria eat the, the oil slicks away, right? And that's, that's a, a microbiome in, in terms of ingestion and uh, production of particular compounds that uh, dissolve uh, the, uh, the oil slick. Um, so uh, production of valuable compounds is a is 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 a very important aspect of, of microbiome design, uh, but also we're now realizing that um, uh, that one can design human uh, microbiome uh, uh, communities uh, by introducing, for example, uh, uh, microbiome uh, supplements, if you like, probiotics, as they're sometimes called, yogurts or other types of um, uh, of uh, uh, supplements into the gut microbiome to enhance its function or to uh, mitigate against disease. Um, uh, and so uh, uh, going to slide five gives us an example for a particular uh, set of, um, uh, of what are called metabolites, these chemicals that are produced by these interactions, complex interactions between microbes in the microbiome. Uh, lactate, succinate, acetate, butyrate. These are four uh, uh, different uh, products of microbiomes that are produced uh, over time. So they fluctuate over time according to uh, uh, both uh, uh, the, the uh, circadian rhythms and, and, and the, the relative health of an individual. Um, and they have different uh, functions. If you like, you can see in blue here um, and written quite small, so maybe you want to magnify your uh, screen. Um, a lactate uh, is uh, known to be a athletic performance um, uh, influencer, and uh, succinate is highly associated with uh, diabetes and glucose homeostasis, um, and acetate uh, uh, for um, uh, Different syndromes if it's if there's if if it's out of whack if the acetate uh, production is either too high or too low uh, you you can have uh, uh, incipient uh, uh, problems dysfunctions uh, butyrate uh, has lots of different um, functions too so each one of these has different functions they're produced in different quantities uh, by um, uh, the different types of communities microbial communities microbiomes that might exist the microbes that coexist in the gut. Um, and so going on to um, slide six, 
uh, this sort of gives you a summary of the gut microbiome in terms of its function to perform both chemical transformations and physical transformations. These gut microbiomes grow. The number of, um, of, of microbes grows. They, uh, they reproduce um, and produce different abundances, um, filling volume, creating um, uh, a mechanical uh, 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 type of uh, transformation in the space. So bloating, for example, that we've all uh, seen when we eat too much, right, is caused by that kind of, um, uh, of compositional um, uh, uh, modulation in addition to gas, which is a, uh, a particular type of metabolite uh, um, uh, production. Uh, the role, of course, is, as I just say, maintaining human health, um, it's a dynamic community, as I tried to emphasize. Um, the microbial interactions, they, they really um, occur as mediated over time uh, due to various types of conditions, you know, whether you've eaten recently, uh, whether you're exercising, uh, whether you are sleeping or awake. Um, and most importantly for this, for the computational part of this, is now we're starting to talk about modeling a little bit, the interactions between microbes uh, can be um, either pairwise or they can be what we call higher order. In other words, that um, uh, you may need to uh, account for how groups of uh, microbes co-interact with each other um, that in order to understand how these microbiomes um, uh, produce different types of function. When we talk about function, we're talking again, composition, abundance of, of species, or or metabolite uh, uh, ingestion, me metabolic yield, as we as we call it, and so that brings to the four microbiome engineering, which we want to design the gut microbiomes to have a particular multifunctional profile. Multifunctional meaning um, a particular profile of uh, metabolite um, production, right, or a particular profile of growth, um, and um, that then will allow us to uh, develop uh, different types of uh, microbiome treatments, microbiome so supplements um, synthetically um, uh, in, the, in, in the lab, uh, but also uh, using, using models, which will allow us to understand how different types of communities, that is combinations of, of species in the microbiome um, will um, affect both this microbial abundance, which is in orange here. You can see that's, that the axes here are time uh, on the horizontal and Xi is the abundance. That's a number, uh, an integer, right? That tells you how many microbes of a particular species uh, exist. So the white uh, curve is one species, the black curve at the uh, close to the bottom is another species and so forth. And then metabolite concentration, that's the, the metabolite or me metabolic function um, uh, concentration is, is denoted by C. And again, that evolves over time. Um, and so the main challenge, of course, to understand uh, how any particular community, any particular combination of these microbes in these 25 species that I'm showing at the left that have been now uh, uh, put into an experimental uh, multi-cell uh, incubator uh, to um, uh, basically form a bioreactor to do experiments of, of different combinations of these communities. Um, you have to explore uh, 
all the communities if you want to have a complete uh, comprehensive understanding of the microbial abundance and metabolite concentration uh, that would occur for any of the two to the 25 minus one exponential number of distinct communities, right? That uh, might uh, you might make as a microbiome designer, right? Um, so it's obviously impractical to experimentally test all of these uh, uh, possibilities. I'm going to slide eight here, here and uh, for these 25 species, um, there are 33 million distinct communities. Uh, and so um, uh, these are just some of the, just shows you some of the breakdown of 25 single species communities, uh, about 4 million 11 species communities, 125 species communities. So we have to uh, somehow grapple with the problem that we're never going to be able to do experiments in all these communities, right? That, that, that's completely out of out of the um, the realm of 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 any reasonable uh, uh, experimental uh, even automated uh, system um, so an alternative to exploring this entire design space is machine learning or uh, building a predictor right and uh, all all this really uh, requires is that uh, we do a few experiments to learn um, uh, more or less, um, that is to some accuracy, uh, uh, how to map the measurement of the microbial community species combination, composition, and maybe the initial conditions of how many species we started with before we grew them, uh, how, many what this, how many species of each uh, class uh, we started with, uh, and how, those, how that maps into a function, right? Growth over time, metabolic year, and so forth. So you start with a small number of experiments, to learn this predictor, this so what we call input-output map in engineering, um, uh, and that map is often called a machine learning algorithm, uh, uh, or a predictor, or a computational model, right? That brings you from uh, uh, a uh, independent variable, microbial community, initial conditions, and species combination, composition to the response, right? The function of the community, so. The main challenge is what do we use as a predictor um, and how do we fit it to, uh, how do we fit that predictor to some subset of these um, micro microbial communities? It may be even a very small subset like I was just alluding to a minute ago. And so um, uh, in the paper, we adopt a, um, uh, a what's called a recurrent neural net. Uh, so it's a neural net of architecture, which is model free in a sense that uh, uh, there's no sort of underlying physical model that uh, we are trying to emulate on this predictor. Um, a few years, uh, one year ago, there was a paper uh, by our um, uh, collaborator, Venture, Venturelli's lab, uh, Ryan Clark, who was postdoc in her lab, um, on a model-based approach, which used a, a very um, intuitive uh, a kind of, uh, let me say, parallel between uh, communities of bacteria and how they might grow and how might they, they might compete with each other to grow and to, um, uh, and, and to be uh, killed uh, in a similar way that a predator-prey model works for a pair of species um, where um, there's a in, intrinsic um, uh, trade-off uh, between the uh, uh, the food supply that uh, 
uh, that uh, will allow uh, lots of prey to roam, um, and the number of predators that uh, will allow the predators to feast on those prey. Um, and so um, uh, these these uh, predator prey models are are given by the a differential equation that I'm showing here on the left. I don't expect anyone to understand this equation. This is just to, to get across the idea that this is a mathematical model, right? It's a, it's a model that depends upon, in particular, uh, what are called pairwise interactions, Xi is the abundance. So if you look at the, the, the function model, there are, there's a multiplication of two of a pair of Xi, Xj. So there's no higher order terms in that model, right? There, so there are no higher order interactions in the uh, different uh, species that might uh, uh, be predator or prey relative to each other to reduce or enhance their populations. Um, and so this was applied to um, uh, a, uh, a phyla of, of bacteria, 25 bacteria that are listed on the right uh, that uh, are character characterized uh, by four phylum, uh, Bacteriodetes, Proteobacteria, and Ectinobacteria and Firmicutes, different types of bacteria, um, as a model for the, the you know, the, uh, uh, the most uh, representative part of the uh, microbiome in the gut. And so they, the, this, this paper derived some predictive results. Um, there were, um, uh, there was a lot of uh, deficiencies of the of the approach that uh, led uh, so uh, Ophelia to approach us and for us to get interested in this, mainly the fact that these was a, the only a model was only pairwise dependent uh, uh, interaction, uh, uh, and uh, it was also a model that was kind of grafted uh, of a growth model and a function model were grafted together. There was something not so elegant about having having to basically take two different models for the growth function and the, and the, the uh, metabolic uh, uh, yield function. So we came in um, to improve on this predictive model. And so the, I, this is so-called generalized Lotke-Volterra model is the model that I, I uh, just described. Um, and it has lots of restrictions. So I'm not going to go into these. Uh, training the model is very heavy. Uh, you have to solve a a, a nonlinear optimization problem. Um, uh, there's uh, not uh, not easy tools for doing that, unlike in machine learning, where lots of tools have been developed recently to to solve uh, these types of um, uh, uh, problems involving backpropagation, as it's called, backpropagation optimization. So in this paper, um, we have a unified predictor model uh, based on what are called recurrent neural networks. This is I'm on topic two here of page 11. Um, and um, it exploits higher order interactions. Um, it uh, uh, predicts composition and function, that composition meaning abundance of species, their growth over time, and the function of uh, metabolic uh, uh, production over time. Um, and we can predict multiple time points. Um, uh, for both metabolic function and um, composition, something that the previous model could only do for the composition. So we get much better accuracy. I'm going to uh, now slide 12, where I'm just gonna very briefly describe what recurrent net neural networks are in terms of their history. 
And it, I'm not going to go into any detail on what the recurrent neural network is. That's for a different talk, probably for a different audience. Um, but uh, suffice it to say that recurrent neural networks are a type of uh, machine learning uh, uh, process or procedure uh, that's been around for a while. Um, it's, uh, you can trace it back to the 80s. Um, it um, uh, was developed uh, primarily for speech applications, uh, automated, automated speech recognition, uh, speaker identification, things like that, that involved temporal processes. Speech is, of course, temporal. Uh, streams of text is temporal. Um, microbiome growth is temporal, right? So that's why we adopt these recurrent neural networks. Um, and uh, you may be familiar with Google Voice or Google Allo. Those are two uh, Google um, uh, services for speech recognition uh, and message suggestion and text processing that are uh, based on recurrent neural networks, in particular on LSTMs. So at the bottom, you see Hawkwriter at all uh, LSTM. LSTM, uh, going to the slide 13, stands for long short-term memory. Um, and it, that's a this is a this is a module for the uh, recurrent neural network. It implements a dynamical system, just like uh, the uh, Lotka-Vitero model implemented a dynamical system, a differential equation. But it's it doesn't explicitly uh, specify the uh, the interaction type, right? Where it's pairwise, three, third order, fifth order, what have you. So it's much more flexible in, in being able to to model uh, complex interactions between high dimensional uh, between lots of lots of microbes in high dimensional systems. So we're going to compare that to the uh, predator prey model, um, the GLEV model, and what we're going to find, and I'm going to very quickly go through these findings, is that the uh, machine learning model, this LSTM, is as good as the uh, predator-prey model, GLV, when there are only second-order interactions. So it's able to perform as well in predicting what microbial communities that have not been seen in the training data, what kinds of uh, abundance profiles, composition, uh, will occur in those if, if you started a, a community off at time zero and allowed it to grow. Um, so generalization from the, from the a small amount of data uh, LSTM is as good as GLV when that data is synthetically generated from a model that only incorporates second order reactions into the generative mechanism. Um, it's better than the predator prey model when there are higher interactions. And uh, so this picture comes out of, out of uh, this is on slide 14 from the 2022 paper, figure one. And I'm not going to describe this, the, all these, uh, these graphs here. For those that are familiar with scatter plots and comparing predicted uh, uh, um, accuracy to uh, relative to the true um, uh, ground truth, you'll recognize these. Uh, but suffice it to say that uh, what we did in the simulation was we took uh, six uh, uh, all species up to level six communities, right? That is uh, communities that had six species or less. Um, and then we generated the growth uh, using a, the basically the predator-prey model, right, for those uh, less than or equal to six species. Um, and then um, 
we applied our LSTM model and applied the GLV model to predict um, uh, species that weren't, uh, communities, I should say, that weren't in the training set um, and uh, composed of uh, 11 uh, and um, uh, 19 species, respectively, right? So we're, we have what are called in machine learning, a training set of less than or equal to six species communities. And we have a test set based on communities that have lots of species, 11 species and 19 species, respectively. Um, and so um, uh, what these plots show is the predicted abundance on those large complex communities from this model, this predictive model that only saw very small communities, right? Less than or, or equal to six species in each one of the communities. And if you have second order interactions in our simulation, you have uh, comparing the top ground truth, uh, excuse me, the top uh, GLV predictions to the bottom LSTM predictions, you have uh, close to the diagonal line. The diagonal line, of course, is where you want to be. You want the uh, predicted abundance, predicted uh, species, relative species abundance to be close to the true abundance, right? Um, and uh, as you start to mix third order or higher or higher order, you get uh, GLV uh, uh, is on the rack, right? It's not able to, to do nearly as well that line, that prediction line is falling, right? So it's that diagonal that should be uh, for an ideal predictor is falling. And um, uh, we are now in uh, a, uh, a situation where the LSTM is, is maintaining its performance while GLV is suffering. Okay, so that's a simulation. This is just to show that the LSTM is doing what is uh, what would be expected of a computational algorithm a machine learning algorithm that doesn't have this second order interaction baked into a model, right? So the experiment that we did, I'm uh, going to slide 15, uh, was to take these 25 species and uh, create uh, 413 communities of the possible 33 million uh, to uh, then do, an do do these 413 experiments with 1.1 1. 1 to 5 species and 11 to 19 species out of the 25 uh, uh, possible, the, the 2 to the 25, excuse me, uh, possible communities, and then apply the, um, the LSTM machine learning method with a feedforward network uh, for those who, who are interested to, to, do, to map the uh, LSTM to particular outcomes, response variables, uh, these butyrate, acetate, lactate, and sustenate, uh, or the growth um, curves, right, that are shown here in uh, the left in orange uh, and the metabolite curve in blue, right? So um, we trained this uh, on these 413 communities. This LSTM was trained using a backpropagation algorithm that I'm not going to mention. Um, with cross-validation to assure that it's not overfitting. And then um, we use this LSTM to predict the function of the remaining almost 33 million communities. And these predictions were used to inform a second validation experiment to, to learn what was uh, we were hoping uh, to be the most diverse set of predicted communities, right? So with the 413 that we chose were kind of randomly selected. And then the, the, for the experiment one, 
For experiment two, we're going to target particular communities to for, for experiment based on our desire to, um, uh, to produce experiments that have communities with much more diverse microbial abundance and metabolite concentration profiles than what we uh, saw under the random um, experiment. So I'm showing now the uh, on uh, slide 16, the uh, outcome of that experiment. What you see in the middle uh, is, is this big square in the middle. Uh, that is uh, what those gray dots are the um, representing the 313 uh, um, uh, training samples and what they produced in terms of lactate and butyrate. So that's, there's a pair, it's a point in the, in the plane. What you see that uh, uh, looks like a uh, gray to black surface in, with some look ellipsoidal shapes that uh, uh, are in the middle, two ellipsoidal shapes, those are the um, predictions of the 33 million. So where you have very hot, dense black means that there are a lot of communities in that, uh, that, that, at that point that produce butyrate and lactate at that particular level that uh, is indicated uh, by the uh, horizontal and vert vertical axis, right? So we have 33 million communities that have now uh, been predicted from 413, 313 communities that uh, uh, they, pr they predicted the metabolite prediction profile. And here I'm just showing the endpoint of that profile that the predictor predicted at 48 hours, right? Um, so uh, what you see then is a landscape, right? That's what we were asking for. We want to discover a landscape of what the uh, metabolic yield, the succinate, lactate, acetate, butyrate production is for any combination of these species, any one of these 33 million communities. And that's what we have now. Now, problematically, of course, it's only a predictor. And it's based as a predictor based on a very small number of samples, right? So what we're interested in is how good does that predictor perform for these points that we haven't seen yet, right? The ones that aren't uh, marked by these gray dots. Um, and so what we decided to do was do a second experiment with 95 um, different communities uh, where we chose those communities from these uh, what we call corner cases. They're off on the side so that they have either very low butyrate uh, production or low lactate production at the bottom, right? Or uh, low butyrate at the left side, right? Of this, uh, uh, this, this uh, square. And we had then um, a few others that a few other uh, communities that were chosen sort of in the bulk, as I call it, uh, uh, where we have uh, just to validate in that dark region where there's lots of communities that tend to produce the same lactate butyrate uh, combination. And then I'm showing you know, different uh, pairwise uh, uh, slices through this four dimensional space of these four um, uh, uh, different types of, of metabolites uh, that uh, are shown in in green, purple, uh, blue, and, and red insets. Um, so what we did, as I just to, to, re, to, to reemphasize, we went in, we chose new uh, experimental uh, uh, planning 
communities, right? How do you plan the experiment with these communities that are chosen from these corners um, to both validate the predictor, right? And also to update the model to come up with a better predictor, right? To incorporate those new communities into the model to boost its accuracy in regions where um, there's not a whole lot of, of evidence, right? In these corner communities, there weren't a lot of uh, uh, data from our uh, initial experiment. So I'm just going to go to slide 17 very quickly to mention that a side benefit of, of uh, these machine learning methods is their interpretability. And so what I show is that a, uh, what's uh, uh, a, a method, uh, a explainable AI method that we applied to the LSTM to elucidate what the most important species on the left uh, in, in uh, D of this figure, what are the most important species for uh, predicting various of these metabolites? right? Butate, acetate, lactate, and succinate. Um, and so what's in red are, are uh, positive, what's in blue are negative relations, right? So a, a positive relation means that if you increase, for example, AC, um, which is a Fermicute uh, uh, bacterium, then you tend to increase the amount of lactate that's produced. On the other hand, you tend to decrease because we have a red a uh, big thick red line going up to butyrate, connecting AC and butyrate, you tend to decrease butyrate, right? If you increase AC. So that's what that means. And so this machine learning algorithm has effectively enabled the uh, biologists to identify what the most important species are for producing various types of uh, metabolites um, and how they might inhibit production, right? Of, of certain metabolites. Uh, so if you want to produce butyrate, you probably don't want AC, right, to be in that community. Uh, so you want to pull it out and let some of the others uh, contribute to, to butyrate, like DP and EL. What I'm showing on the right is the same picture, but for the abundance, for predicting the abundance uh, that occurs um, uh, over, over time. And um, uh, I, these, the, we're looking basically at what are those pairs, those interactions between different uh, uh, metabolites that tend to increase abundance versus decrease abundance, right? And so again, red and blue correspond to uh, increasing versus decreasing abundance when that interaction is present. Um, and so again, this gives us sort of an interpretable uh, uh, mechanism for uh, explaining uh, which variables are the most important in both uh, growth and on the right and metabolism on the left. And the, one of the most um, exciting findings that we came up with uh, is this picture, is that um, uh, you can notice that out of the four different uh, phyla of bacteria, um, really uh, only three of them are dominating the metabolite production, uh, Firmicutes, Actinobacteria, and Proteobacteria. The uh, bacteriorides are not uh, really making a, a, a you know a, a big entrance here. They're not they they they're not they don't have very much influence. Um, PC is is a bacteria DDS, um, and it doesn't have much influence on the left. It's only influencing one succinate, and that's being taken care of by others. Um, 
that uh, are in the actinobacteria and firmicute. On the other hand, for abundance, bacteriodetes are the ones that are governing the growth. So the bacteriodetes seem to be associated with the growth dynamics of the microbiome, whereas these other types of bacteria are, are most specialized, if you like, in producing particular types of chemicals, right? Uh, these chemicals that, that aid in uh, digestion and, and uh, other, other functions. So um, I'm running out of time and I, I'm going to uh, skip, uh, skip ahead uh, to experiment uh, two, where I mentioned that we uh, tested uh, 95 representative sets of communities predicted by experiment one. And the, um, the punchline with this is that we observed a diversity of, uh, of these uh, uh, metabolite concentrations when we performed this experiment. And that's on, on slide 18. Um, you can see that there's a very diverse set of, uh, of profiles of these four different uh, metabolites. And um, uh, that, was our, that was the purpose, was to explore uh, the landscape and then validate that landscape and then improve the model. And that's what slide 19 is all about, is we now incorporated these 95 additional uh, uh, experiments into the original experiments and um, then retrained the LSTM machine learning algorithm, resulting at the bottom left with a, uh, a cross-validated prediction, prediction accuracy on a leave one out uh, 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 basis that uh, uh, illustrated that the LSTM is perform was performing very well and also elucidating again the uh, roles, the differing roles of these various, uh, on the right uh, of these various species uh, uh, in producing these different uh, butyrate, acetate, lactate, succinate uh, metabolites. Okay, so I'm going to my conclusions. Uh, 20, uh, slide 20, um, we have established that embedded machine learning can be used to accelerate scientific discovery, reducing the number of experiments. If someone had tried to perform uh, just a randomly selected uh, 413 experiments, uh, you wouldn't have discovered those corner cases because they're way out in the, in the tails, right? The probability you would have discovered those would be uh, infinitesimally small. But by using this two-stage process, we discovered those through the predictor, and then we're able to very quickly zone in on them, uh, zero in on them, I should say, in the second experiment. Um, we have explainable AI that helps us uh, interpret the model, um, and useful design principles have emerged. And I just mentioned those. The drivers of metabolic yield versus the drivers of growth dynamics are two different classes of micro um, uh, bacteria, right? So future directions, we're looking to do a validation on in vivo. This is all done in, in a, on a synthetic microbiome, right? So 25, uh, can we validate this on actual gut microbiome? Maybe a mouse model to start out with is what uh, Ophelia is, is suggesting. Um, we have fixed the environment and the growth media in these experiments. What's the effect of those two things on growth and metabolic uh, function, we don't know. We would have to, we, we'd like to do a, additional experiments with machine learning embedded
to find out what the optimal environments are and uh, growth media for partic attaining particular uh, outcomes, functions. And then we're looking also, as I mentioned in the beginning, applications to different types of microbiomes like plants and antibiotics. Um, and then the final, uh, the final thing I should say, which is more on a methodology and um, sort of scientific uh, exploration uh, direction, is we're really looking for a deeper, beyond two-stage embedding of machine learning. So it becomes uh, intrinsically part of the design cycle, uh, incorporated into an automated research workflow system. Um, and uh, I'll just, uh, 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 by way of explanation, go to the last slide in the, in the talk, which uh, is just basically a pointer to a report that uh, I was participating uh, member on, chaired by uh, my colleague Dan Atkins at the University of Michigan, and uh, uh, reporting on a study that the uh, the United States National Academies did on automating the research uh, uh, protocol and procedures using automated research workflows for accelerating discovery. So I, with that, I'm going to um, uh, stop and uh, see if there's additional discussion. Thank you so much uh, uh, for this wonderful talk, uh, for explaining it, um, especially, you know, the machine learning part to us um, really well. So I really appreciate that. Um, and um, yeah, if anyone has questions, please flash your microphones um, and um, yeah, and we'll go from there. So Dennis, uh, Joyce, you flashed your microphone and um, uh, Eric uh, and I guess Mayor and Dr. Shaw. So, yeah, let's just go uh, in PTR maybe. Thank you. That was a fascinating talk. Uh, I definitely have more questions than we have time for. I'm going to ask a really sort of basic one. So, there were 413 out of the 33 uh, million. 33 million possible. So during experiment one, how were those those initial? How was that initial set of um, experiments pulled? Like, was it representative of the? Like, how did you select them? Yeah, it's a great question. So we we had the benefit. You know, we all stand on shoulders of giants, right? So we had the benefit of a uh, you know over two decades of. Uh, of research into the gut microbiome that uh, had specified, you know, that it, either in single um, uh, shot types of experiments or in multiple shot, like what uh, uh, Ryan Clark, uh, the postdoc in uh, Ophelia Venturelli's lab had performed. Uh, so these species were selected um, so that they would highly represent what we knew, because you know, they were skeptical at first. I think, I, I you know, I, I think if you asked Ophelia, she would say that she, you know, she wasn't completely buying into this idea that you abandon uh, this tried and and true model in in in, uh, uh, in ecology and predator prey um, to a model that you know is not based on a on a mathematical mechanism, right? Um, so. Uh, she, she wanted to make sure that we chose uh, a set of communities that were reasonably well understood. Um, and that uh, then, then, of course, there was a, a set of other communities, I forget the exact proportion, 
uh, that were chosen sort of at random, right? Sort of as um, uh, just a way to, uh, to to validate how well how well we might we might do in in using these uh, machine learning methods. Does that answer your question? Yes, absolutely. Um, I definitely appreciate it. I want to know so much more about how the machine learning goes, but I want to leave some um, time for others. So, Dr. Shaw, to you. Yeah, thank you so much. That was absolutely fascinating work. My question is about use of your research for the uh, whatever that you know as a fecal oral transplant, because you oh, know yeah. that we have an IBD uh, condition yeah. and I was just wondering, maybe we can use your research and see that. What is your opinion? Yeah, well, I think you know these these fecal transplants are very, uh, very they're fascinating, uh, and they seem to have had uh, not just for IBD, but in 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 other uh, domains have determined um, uh, everything from uh, you know the, uh, uh, the 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 cognitive states of uh, in mouse experiments uh, to um, uh, different types of uh, uh, of, of performance um, uh, in again mouse primarily mouse experiments and of course there have been there have been human experiments with fecal transplants um, that have had had uh, uh, very good initial results. Um, I think that you know the the implication here is that uh, a transplant that's not necessarily fecal that that may be from uh perhaps even a um, uh a a say uh, greenhouse uh to to use an analogy uh where you use bioreactors to grow different species create the communities uh, synthetically you don't transplant them from another you know healthy human being uh, uh, to to try and, and solve the dysfunction of, of a IBD patient. Um, you basically create them in the lab and then you add them uh, through a, a capsule, right? Um, or a treatment. Um, you swallow a, 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 you know, a, fr a refrigerated capsule and um, that would be composed of synthetic uh, designed, but biologically, you know, living uh, bacteria. And this research would help to uh, sort of tease out which types of communities would, would be the most uh, effective in, uh, you know, treating certain types of, of, of disease or dysfunction based on our understanding, which I must admit is very limited right now. Um, if you ask a gastroenterologist, Certainly, they won't be able to tell you uh, that uh, you know it's it's a combination. This particular combination of lactate and succinate that uh, that that causes fecal transplant uh, recipients to improve in their um, uh, in, in their their prognosis and and symptoms. Uh, but once we have that understanding, uh, we can we'll have a, an ability to link the particular response variable that we've used, which is this abundance and metabolite concentration um, to, um, you know, the particular type of, uh, uh, of, of compounds, uh, chemical compounds that are required in order to have a, uh, a lasting uh, uh, treatment effect. 
So, yeah, I, I'm not a clinician, so I can't really answer any deeper than that. But I, that's, I think, a very exciting area uh, for for this type of research to have impact. Also, for the species that you just collected, did you use the whole GI system? For example, duodenum that we have, for example, 100 million per gram microorganism there, or is just specifically from Cologne? Right. This So these 25 species um, were selected by my collaborator. Um, so I can't really uh, speak too much to why she selected this particular set of four uh, phyla of um, 25 species. But she was certainly targeting the, the gut microbiome. I'm not sure whether it was the colon or the uh, you know, the stomach or, or what, what part of that microbiome she was trying to target. I think she was she, I, likely choosing these on the basis also of experimental feasibility, right? Um, bacteria that are fairly easy to, uh, to grow and maintain and resilient to environmental conditions and so forth, just, just to sort of get started. But she'd do a much better job at describing uh, the, the selection uh, justification uh, for these 25, these particular 25 bacteria. But a great question. Thank you, Thank you so much, Alfred. Yes, you're welcome. All right. So that was awesome. I got some questions. I have, sure. I, I have more of, um, uh, let me kind of explain. Can, can, can this thing progress to the following, right? So what I kind of see here is you can go in there um, and basically start to, you got 30, would you say 33 million communities? That's not species, but 33 million different communities. Different That's communities. What right. Yeah. Holy 25, cow. 25 species. Now, if you go to the thousands of species that we're talking, that we were just talking about, yeah, uh, there's going to be a heck of a lot more than 33 million. Yeah. <laughs> so this, is, this, is, this is wild. So you can basically go in and do like very personalized medicine right where you go in once you once you keep expanding this model get more and more data the predictions are getting better and better right instead right. of doing like a fecal transplant from somebody that's healthy but you're getting a whole bunch of other unknowns in there too but you might want to just get a very specific type of community growing with the bacteria that's where the capsules can come in to, to in, come in and inject and get that community going but i can see this becoming more better and personalized with this model because then you could probably like pull out uh, data you know basically pull, pull out a specimen from an individual put them yeah. into this model and then now you can get very accurate um, uh, understanding of what you need to deliver in that capsule down into the microbiome to open up and basically start creating some type of new community of some some sorts that's specific to that person according to that percentage of what he needs is that kind of like accurate that's a great that's a great suggestion uh, uh, that yeah and in uh, the, the application of personalized medicine would that would be one instance of it where you you basically take a sample from uh, a patient, right? Uh, uh, that uh, you then um, grow in the lab. You uh, you look at the uh, metabolic uh, uh, functions of that microbiome in, in conditions that emulate that person's gut, uh, and then uh, you try to identify from the landscape of all these other communities that we've you know predicted with other people with similar types of uh, environments in their gut, uh, what would be the supplement, right? That supplement ba uh, bacteria that would, um, you know, put uh, that particular person back into the, you know, the, the healthy phenotype. Um, and, and so, you know, that, that is probably way in the future, but um, 
uh, it's, uh, I mean, these experiments are expensive right now. Uh, it's uh, a, uh, a process to, when you look at metabolite production, it's not instantaneous and it, it varies as a function of the circadian cycles um, and digestive cycles. So you probably have to take samples over, uh, you know, a period of time uh, during the day um, uh, or maybe even during a month, right? To account for, you know, the different types of lifestyle uh, variations that the individual might have that would cause changes to the microbiome. You could then build a microbiome temporal profile, if you like, uh, that's, you know, waxes and wanes in certain uh, dimensions due to these various factors, environmental factors, dietary factors, exercise factors. Um, and that would give you a much fuller picture of that individual. And maybe that, you know, one thing we haven't discussed at all, we really even ha haven't haven't uh, explored is resilience, right? So uh, some of the, what we have this, this, this microbiome that is synthetic uh, in, in vitro, I should say, microbiome, it's in a static conditions. Um, but if you start to look at resilience, then you're asking well, if you, those conditions uh, start to change, maybe these, um, these results that, you know, are being predicted by uh, machine learning, um, uh, those only apply for, uh, for particular conditions. And so what you'd want to do is you'd want to use maybe some sort of uh, what's called adversarial machine learning to account for the fact that uh, you want robustness of the predictions to these um, types of environmental variations, right? And that might give us a completely different set of uh, bacterial um, uh, membership in these uh, communities that produce these various types of uh, uh, metabolites. But it, it's a great suggestion, very, very interesting idea. Yeah, and lastly, I think like, because it's, you know, everybody's microbiome is different, right? So, and then you, you're dealing with living uh, microbes. So, I mean, I, I could foresee like, once you got this model down, it would be very uh, beneficial to almost like, you know, go show up somewhere and go in and then they, they take a sample and they come back and say, okay, well, you need this and this and this. And they make you a concoction of like different right. uh, uh, capsules and things to take that are specific to you. They, then you take home and then you basically uh, utilize and then you go back and forth and, you know, basically get your microbiome uh, fixed up uh, in a very laser focused way, you know? Yeah, right. Right. It's like yeah, in a few years, it'll be, uh, you know, uh, microbiome synthesis as a service. We'll see that pitch. Exactly. Down, I'm sure. Exactly. exactly. Right. Yeah. No, there's a lot. And, and then there's the, then there's sort of the, uh, the implication that uh, there's another step here, right? What we'd like to be able to do is, uh, you know, once, once they've gotten these capsules and we've figured out what they need, we'd like to figure out how they would naturally be able to supplement, right? Uh, so they don't need, they're not dependent on the capsules anymore. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's, uh, that's much, in terms of business model, that's a much harder proposition, right? Clearly. But uh, I think in terms of uh, a social benefit, it's, uh, unless you go that, that entire, you know, um, uh, length of uh, uh, trying to develop a, uh, you know, in vitro solution, and then leading to a natural solution where the person can adjust their diet, perhaps, or, you know, uh, use, uh, uh, some uh, some other mechanisms, including things like exercise or change of lifestyle, to try and uh, and correct their microbiomes. There's so much that's not that's not understood, uh, and microbiome, of course, uh, 
it may not be the root cause of of the the malaise or disease that uh, is causing the 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 sort of dis uh, dysfunction of uh, of these communities. Um, so uh, trying to go to the root cause is is I think um, an important uh, second step, if you like. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah I'll go ahead and uh, I think Ayo, you're next, buddy. Yeah, thanks. Um, so my question is about the interference terms, and I guess also similar to what I, Dennis was saying, I, with the select. Can I just put a hand up? I think we've skipped me, but I'm happy to go after Ayo. Oh, uh, maybe a pull to refresh. Yeah. My bad, I guess. Uh... Yeah. You yeah, I think yeah. Russ was first, and then Eric and then Joyce. Oh, I'm sorry. On my on my screen, no, oh, on my screen, it had yeah. IO first. I apologize. You just got to refresh. And in between, I wanted to check with Al how much time you have left because it's. So I have till three thirty. Okay. Yeah. So. Okay. So everyone yeah, that's another fifteen minutes or so. Then we should, we should get to everyone. Yeah. Thank you. I'll be exceedingly brief. Um, first of all. Um, really eye-opening uh, and presented so beautifully. Like, uh, I always admire the capacity to metabolize dense information and then, you know, feed it to others in a way that they can climb on. And so thank you for that. Um, I'm thinking about um, sort of, let's say, the microbiome has that level of specific effect on, you know, the human and everything else, really. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm thinking about some implications of that. One being, if we uh, set about altering microbiome by person or community with intention about, you know, well-being and, let's say, best possibility for species, um, we inevitably will be changing our relationship and the microbiome's relationship to everything else. Mm -hmm. Sort of a profound environmental impact, butterfly wing style. Uh -huh. So that's, I think that's the, the one comment I'll make and I'm interested in your thoughts about that. Uh, that's a great comment. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's certainly nature has evolved, um, you know, the, the, our species and and others, you know, all of all of life on on this planet, to uh, have a homeostasis of uh, microbiome uh, health, right? And uh, if we try to shift that to a different operating point, uh, maybe you could call it a uh, you know a local a saddle point. <laughs> Uh, maybe maybe a local minimum, but uh, probably a saddle point. Um, then it opens up an opportunity for everything from uh, you know what we know so well in the past couple of years, viruses or bacterial infections, to take advantage of the fact that uh, we as humans have embarked upon you know a a blinking of an eye. Uh, uh, second of you know our uh, of, of uh, in our in the era uh, of multiple epochs of na natural selection and natural development of the microbiome, we've chosen to shift it without realizing what kinds of vulnerabilities we are uh, opening up to in in making this shift. So I agree completely with you on that philosophical point, um, and 
I, I think that uh, this this whole area deserves uh, a uh, much deeper discussion uh, with um, you know people in the room who you know uh, are the big thinkers on on you know the, these what you call uh, uh, butterfly effects uh, that um, uh, can be uh, catastrophic for the for the species uh, or for life on Earth in general, um, or, or amazing if the same amazing. intention yeah. is applied yes. in altering the microbiome in favor of let's say addressing the climate crisis. Yes, um, right, right, and that that's another aspect, right? But what what do we open? Um, in terms of vulnerabilities, if we do that, that's 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 the question. I mean, we can address the climate tri- crisis uh, symptomatically, to use a clinical uh, analogy, but if we're not addressing the root cause by re- reducing uh, fluorohydrocarbons and uh, and, and other uh, types of uh, production that uh, you know increases our exposure to climate. Uh, uh, induced uh, changes, then you know a, a microbiome uh, difference may be just a drop in the bu- in the bucket, right? That um, that doesn't propagate too far. But fascinating, fascinating ideas, um, uh, and and I think raising a lot of uh, of issues that uh, go way beyond sort of the the uh, the bench science that we're talking about here. Yeah, hi. My question is uh, on page 10, uh, you have a, uh, uh, on slide 10 or whatever you want to call it, um, yeah. uh, function model regression complementarity effects. Does that include uh, positive and negative effects? Or is that only, because uh, I was just curious, because like we're looking at uh, kind of the viral version of what you're, you're, mm. you're doing and we're trying to see interference terms. And so it's it's really hard if uh, unless you already know kind of the molecular situations that are going on. So I'm curious as to how you made uh, choices in that part of the model. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. So first of all, this isn't my work. This is the work of uh, Ryan and uh, Ophelia Venturelli. Um, we sort of built on this work as sort of the the, the launching point. Um, this model. Um, is a uh, based on this predator prey model, and and you're, you're undoubtedly familiar with it uh, from from your your prior work the, on the growth model, the, the GLV uh, generalized Lotka-Volterra model, where you know there's a um, these this this A um, IJ selection effects uh, and basal growth basically control uh, respectively the how how um, you know the the the, the trade off between uh, growth of the prey species uh, in the absence of the interaction with the predator and uh, growth of the predator species in absence of interaction with the prey. And when you put them together, that, that effectively describes AIJ. For the function model, the regression model, this is a, a regression that makes an assumption. And I think, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little biased here because I'm, I'm, I'm arguing here that we should not be tied too, too closely to a pairwise interaction model. Um, one could argue perhaps that the pairwise interaction model might be justifiable from a uh, predator-prey perspective, um, and maybe with you know only two agents, uh, two bacteria in this case. Um, but I think for function, predicting function, that's a much more complicated process. Um, and yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. So, so, so we were looking at kind of the interference terms and saying, okay, we're going to assume n terms of interference, not just pairwise interference, and that okay. got and very quickly. And then we tried to think of ways of reducing the model. So there was some kind of similarity in chemical bonds or approximations that you could do kind of to coarse grain it. But uh, yeah, thank you. And sorry for uh, not realizing the question kind of was uh, slightly uh, not related to your work directly. But I, in, in terms of that kind of decision making, uh, like I guess just established databases provide the most informative uh, yeah. view. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, and I and I think if if Ophelia uh, comes on at a later time, which I hope she does, she she actually wanted to be here too, uh, but she's in Europe right now. Um, uh, then you know, come come back, and I'm sure uh, you'll get a lot more information about uh, about this model. We'll we'll do. Thank you very much. So I think maybe I'm next. Um, I was going to say um, I did. Uh, ecosystem modeling research quite a few decades ago at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, mm. and I can say that I, I appreciate the difficulty of what you're doing, and it's mm. really great, and, and a lot of advances have been made since then. Um, and I was just going to relate a little bit more to a topic you already mentioned a little bit, but maybe you want to say a little bit more specifics about it, and that is about the role of diet and studies. There are various types of studies, some that establish what they consider to be an anti-inflammatory diet, and they even have mm -hmm. an ind index, and then studies associating a westernized diet um, with uh, various autoimmune and inflammatory diseases, and I put a link in the chat, and, and mm -hmm. a study by Chiba, studies by Chiba epidemiology and interventions with plant-based diets in IBD, and I'll put a link mm -hmm. in there for that too. Anyway, any thoughts? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's 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 a a great question that relates sort of back to this um, this main issue of uh, what can you do to perturb the uh, the microbiome that you have uh, to something that's better, right? And that that is more both uh, gives you a more um, uh, resilient uh, ability to uh, maintain, uh, you know, digestive health, uh, but also uh, one that uh, is long-lasting, right? And that's where diet comes in. I think that you know you, that uh, what you want to do is you want to change, you want to get a sea change of uh, of the uh, interactions that uh, are possible and those that are not possible, right? Because some interactions can can wreak uh, can wreak havoc um, uh, in terms of uh, as as we were showing in our results um, uh, of uh, inhibiting certain uh, uh, metabolite production right so if we could um, sort of break down uh, in uh, the sense of uh, you know what what kinds of uh, uh, of bacterial uh, or microbial more generally uh, communities would work best uh, to uh, uh, to accommodate uh, let's say a, a dietary regime which is rich in um, in lactate right already so you know yogurts and and dairy products um, or for someone who's lactate you know lactate intolerant um, 
is that does it have something to do with the microbiome? Is it that the, the microbiome is maybe deficient in the bacteria that are effectively uh, aiding the ingestion or digestion uh, of, of lactate? Or can, and and um, uh, so with plants, uh, it's a similar type of, of, of story, right? Are there bacteria that are especially um, uh, well-suited uh, towards um, a dietary regimen where they, you know, can can pull the maximal um, nutritive value out of different types of diets that um, uh, some of some of which may be deficient, right, um, uh, or some of the which may be overabundant in certain um, uh, types of uh, uh, of components. I mean, clearly, it's been uh, it's been seen that uh, in the in the research that um, fibers and uh, uh, probiotics um, have a, uh, you know, a positive effect, if you like, uh, for uh, at least, you know, ev the evidence is that it has had a positive effect on, uh, on digestive health. How that is mediated precisely by the microbiome, that's where we could start to look at different types of, of, of research. I mean, if we could, if we could synthesize in the vitro a full digestive system, where you have, where you can introduce different types of, uh, uh, of, of food groups and uh, environmental conditions and and so forth, that, that would, that that would be a you know a, an interesting uh, follow-on experiment. With the caveat, of course, that it's also well known that um, you know uh, that we that there are connections between the microbiome and and the brain, right? Uh, the central nervous system. Uh, you know, serotonin, um, I uh, I believe is uh, uh, at least uh, there, there's some of it's partially produced by the micro the gut microbiome, right? Uh, which, of course, uh, serotonin is what uh, uh, what allows, uh, you know, the neurotransmitter function to, um, uh, to, to, to thrive. Um, and, uh, I think, you know, that having a, an in vitro system, there's always a danger, right. Of, uh, of not treating the holistic whole of the, um, the host that, uh, for which the microbiome is, is so integral, um, in terms of maintaining the host health. Yeah, thanks. And then you add another layer of complexity about individual inflammatory allergy uh, reactions to, yeah. to things. That is a whole nother complexity level. Exactly. Yeah. Autoimmune diseases, right? And all, yeah, that's just, yeah, it just takes it in a completely different uh, dimension. Yeah, thank you. We have two minutes left, so um, I'm not sure if we get to everyone that's still on the stage, but uh, maybe Einar, do, do you want to ask your question? Yeah, hi. I'll make it quick. Um, so when it comes to this AI that you use, uh, is there any regulations here when it comes to uh, difference in the microbiome? Uh, and actually, will transfer to work the, the, the spine and uh, and, and uh, uh, what will be further on uh, processed by the human mind and whatnot. And as uh, my hair was into also when it comes to capsules, 
Uh, mm. Does it say anything about the adaption level or the time that we actually need to just like switching a snap in towards capsules? Just like to me, it seems like this will take probably many years for a body to adapt to. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's, yeah, again, a really great question because, uh, you know, effectively, these, these AI techniques are limited by uh, the training data that you provide. Um, and, uh, you know, they, if you don't provide at least somewhat representative training data, uh, unless you supplement with mechanistic, biological, physiological, um, chemical uh, models, uh, you're not going to be able to predict very well, right? Um, you know, AI, uh, you know, from, from a mathematical uh, viewpoint is nothing more than uh, a, um, uh, an interpolation, as it's called, right? And, and uh, it, you can interpolate between points and you can extrapolate to a certain point uh, between points, but it's just a big complex interpolator. And so if you don't have enough data to support that interpolation uh, in the right parts of the data space, then you're not going to be able to say very much about um, uh, about that part of the data space, right? Because it's uh, it, it may not uh, be well interpolated. So in terms of doing the uh, looking at uh, things like interventions, and that's what these capsules are, that's a whole nother area that we, that we don't even address what point in the cycle you saw those uh, met metabolic um, and uh, growth curves that I showed for each one of the species um, and uh, these these growth curves there may be some most uh, propitious time to give that capsule right if you give it at that particular time uh, then the capsule will have the, the best effect. It will, be, it will integrate the most rapidly and the most effectively with the rest of the, the microbiome as it exists. If you give it at the wrong time, maybe it just passes through, right? Um, so uh, it, again, these are really good questions that go far beyond what we've just um, sort of scratched the surface with these experiments. So I, I'll entertain uh, one more question and then I'm gonna have to go. Great, thank you. Go ahead, Rebecca. So I, I don't know if this will apply to the talk. I missed the talk, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if repetitive, the same repetitive movement of the body, whatever the movement is, affects microbiome. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a, a question that goes beyond my, certainly my experience or uh, expertise. Um, Exercise has been linked to microbiome health. How, uh, you know, so is, is exercise a repetitive um, movement type of, uh, of activity? Well, maybe, right? Um, so when you say repetitive movement, are you referring to something different from exercise? Yeah, I'm referring to any repetitive movement. So if it's like, the slumping of the shoulders, or if it's um, um, like a stop sign with your hand, like a boundary or yeah. a squat, if there's not time for a further conversation about it, but I, it, it will answer a question I've had. Yeah. 
I do not, uh, first of all, whatever answer I give, you should take with a grain of salt because I'm not a specialist in microbiome physiology. Um, but uh, I, I would, I would think that any any degree of physical activity that can uh, you know restore uh, it, both uh, sort of a, uh, a, a a chemical and a mechanical environment uh, for the microbiome to thrive uh, would be positive. But you know it's it's just so so linked with everything else. I mean, pe- people. I mean, you, we've all had experience. Uh, you know, if, if you exercise regularly. Uh, you have better digestive uh, uh, passage, right? Uh, you're, you have uh, better appetite, and microbiome certainly is associated with appetite. That's one of the main functions of microbiomes uh, is to regulate appetite um, in a healthy, uh, uh, healthy individual. So, you know, I think it would be extrapolation to say that uh, you know other types of repetitive uh, activities would have. Uh, positive or negative effect on the microbiome. Um, but certainly exercise has been established as having, uh, you know, a measurable effect on microbiome health and, and host health. Great. Thank you so much. Yep. You're welcome. Well, thank you Good. so much, Al. Um, I know Armish had um, questions about the- I'll be very quick. Learning part. Okay. All right. Very quick. Yeah. So, uh, Thanks a lot, Alfred. I missed the initial part, but uh, I, from the paper I understand, it's a time series modeling. Um, so right. I just wanted to know, so the combination, the whole permutation and combination of the species group which you made, uh, if you put in a GLV model versus if you put in a LSTM model, what's the T there? What's the time difference over which this gets observed? That's one thing. And after that model, uh, can it also extrapolate uh, handsomely to the, the time for which it hasn't seen in the raw input data? Mm. Very good question. So we do know, um, I'll ask you the last part of your question first. We do know that, um, uh, that it's very good at interpolation. Uh, so when we trained on our first experiment, uh, we trained only on an endpoint metabolic uh, production. Uh, So uh, we trained at 48 hours, we had data uh, from metabolism. Uh, For the the other uh, eight hour uh, intervals, uh, we had uh, data on abundance, that is on species relative uh, uh, volume, right, within the microbiome. Uh, but we had no metabolic information beyond that endpoint. And yet the uh, LSTM uh, time series model uh, was able to induce what the metabolic profile was. Now, most likely that was because of the fact that we had uh, time series on the abundance of the relative abundance of different bacteria. And that that's related, that was sufficiently related, right? The waxing and waning and relative uh, uh, number of, of, of species translates into metabolic production, right? Also a waxing and waning of metabolic. So we thought that that's probably the, um, the answer there. Now, in terms of, uh, of the time uh, 
uh, experimentally, the time that you can exp reasonably do an experiment, uh, the turnaround time, if you like, for one experiment is about eight to 16 hours. Um, and the reason is that the, uh, the medium actually becomes corrupted after, um, after a, a period of time. Um, the, and and it, the medium changes, and so the the bacteria ceases to grow or, or dies. So uh, you have to basically refresh the medium, um, what which the experimentalists um, uh, did um, at uh, uh, sixteen hour intervals, and uh, with so that corresponded to uh, uh, you know the, the the challenge that we had is that you know while certainly microbiome dynamics are on a time scale that's less than 16 hours right because uh, that doesn't even that doesn't even capture the digestive cycle or the circadian cycle but we are limited in time resolution due to the experimental limitations uh, and that uh, that's something that uh, uh, we're would be very eager to find out if there are uh, you know advances in experimental um, uh, protocols and uh, uh, techniques that would enable us to overcome that hurdle and go to go to you know denser uh, time sampling so we get a much clearer picture of the dynamics we don't know about extrapolation we have not tried to extrapolate um, uh, we've we we've been able to to interpolate we have good you know, positive uh, uh, evidence that that's uh, effective uh, but uh, extrapolation, we we have not tried. Understood. I'll not take much of your time, but yeah. Sure. Well, th thank you, uh, everybody, for your questions. They're very uh, thought-provoking, and it is a pleasure to be here to uh, explain a little about a little bit about our research. Well, thank, thank you for Hi, presenting. All of our questions, and you know, this is wonderful research. We are looking. Thank you very much. Your, Great. I wanted to ask you about the plant. Yes. Yeah, but uh, we didn't get it. Maybe I will, for sure we'll write, invite Ophelia here, and maybe one day we'll in. Mike. Yeah. We're that losing really losing you. With pleasure. Okay. It was really grand. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. And uh, have a great week. And uh, hope to uh, hope everybody sees some exciting uh, scientific uh, presentations over the next uh, couple of weeks. I'm very impressed uh, by uh, what uh, uh, Clubhouse has been able to put together. This is a really nice, nice medium. Thank you. Yeah, you come back. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good. Um, that's a good <laughs> connect to what comes next. So, uh, yeah, follow the club. We'll have more uh, rooms like this. We have tonight, Dr. Cotwell talking about high precision measurements of the W boson mass. Mm. We'll have on Wednesday, Dr. Spurkus talk about rare deep sea brine pools and origins of life research. Wow. And yeah. Thursday, Dr. Singh think about IVF sequencing and how it can predict better the risk of miscarriage. 
and um, then we'll have an engineer coming, how he and his team engineered mattresses that kind of regulate the temperature uh, during falling asleep and during the night, which mm. improves the quality of sleep. And quality of sleep is really important, as we learned here in different rooms about dementia and health rooms. Um, we had different sleep rooms. And on Friday, we'll have a team coming here, Dr. Ren and Dr. Cheng, talking about new semiconductors that are better than silicon. Um, and um, yeah, that's our wow. week. And then next week, we'll have more. So feel free to come back. And uh, yeah. thanks. And um, thanks, everyone, for participating. We really appreciate it. Right. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Thank Close you. the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone, and thank Bye. you.